we are going through Matthew's gospel. It's been a wonderful journey so far. And we, we came through sort of the first, you know, four chapters is sort of establishing who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior. He's come to take away the sins of the world. Uh, then Jesus uh, begins his mission. He goes about healing, preaching, teaching. Um, incredible miracles happen. We, we saw the Sermon on the Mount where just the most amazing truths ever preached um, came down from Jesus. And then chapters 8 and 9, Matthew focuses in on Jesus' authority that Jesus with a word can heal, with a word can raise the dead, can calm a storm, cast out a demon. And then it ended at the end of chapter 9 with how Jesus views people. So as he goes about teaching and healing and announcing, repent and believe the good news is here, now Matthew focuses in on the heart of the healer, the heart of the preacher. And we saw that Jesus' heart is one of compassion. When he looks out upon you and I, when he looks out upon the crowds, he has compassion and sympathy for them. He tells the disciples to have the same compassion and then to pray earnestly for laborers to go into the harvest field and bring in the lost sheep of Israel. Little did the disciples know that when he called them to pray, he was then going to send them out straight away and they would be the answers to their own prayers. And so that's where we come to in chapter 10. Chapter 10 is um, one of the, the speeches of Jesus. Um, there's five of them in Matthew's gospel, and it's a conglomeration of all these different speeches that Jesus made over his ministry with the disciples. And Matthew's put it all together into one chapter. Uh, and it basically, it's, it's sort of like boot camp for uh, Christian mission. So let's jump in. I'm going to read a little bit of chapter 9, and then just up to verse 15 of chapter 10 to kind of orient us. And then I'll, I'll dive into the rest of the passage later. So would you read with me? And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and, his, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel." And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, Find out who is worthy, and let your peace come upon it. 
But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Let's pray. Our God and Father, may you bless the preaching of your word this morning. There's an old military um, maxim or, or wisdom quote which goes like this. Soldiers never rise to the level of the occasion. They fall back to the level of their training. Soldiers never rise to the level of the occasion. They fall back to the level of their training. One of my favorite TV shows, and now I've read the book, is Band of Brothers. Uh, you may have seen it or read it. It's a fantastic description of Easy Company, um, a, a paratrooper group, the elite squadron, a new group that was formed to fight in the World War II. They were part of the famous 101st Airborne Division. And a part of their training was they went to this place called Tekoa, Camp Tekoa. And at Tekoa, they were put through the most rigorous training you could ever imagine. And not only were Easy Company a part of this Tokoa training, but they had a particularly rigorous and disciplined captain, Captain Sobel, who he, he took whatever they had to do, he tripled it and made it even harder. At Camp Tokoa, there was the dreaded Mount Kurahi, and uh, Captain Sobel loved, at the end of their training session, to call the soldiers, he would yell out, Kurahi! And they'd all have to drop whatever they're doing and run the mile and a half up the hill and down again. And if someone came too slow, they would do it again. And he would just punish them, work them incredibly difficultly. Um, in fact, one of the things that he used to love to do with his soldiers was make them do a huge number of their training exercises at night. Seeing as though they were being prepared to drop into France for D-Day, uh, they were going to be dropped in at night. So he wanted them to have basically night vision. Some of the men said that by the end of their time at uh, Camp Tekoa, they could see better at night than they could in the day. Uh, that was how rigorous their training was. And it paid off. Um, Easy Company landed in Normandy on D-Day amongst, oh, thank you, hot water. Thank you. Um, uh, they landed and everything went wrong. The planes were off course. Uh, they, were, they lost half their gear as they landed in the middle of fields where they weren't meant to be. But these Easy Company men quickly assembled, found their position because they'd learned the maps, they knew what to do, they acquired, some of them didn't have rifles, they measured gear out amongst themselves, and they quickly went back to task because of the level of training that they had received. Soldiers never rise to the level of the occasion, they fall back to the level of their training. Well, here Jesus, the great king, is training his new soldiers, his disciples, to go out on their very first mission. We saw in verses 1 through 15, he sets out their tasks and expectations for what the mission will be like. It's sort of a, a boot camp speech, as it were. And the point of these training runs is to prepare these disciples for their future mission, their Matthew 28 Great Commission, where they'll be all on their own. The first 15 verses, as you read it, though, you might have been thinking, this seems like very particular to the disciples. Are we meant to be raising the dead, cleansing lepers? Is that, is that our job? Are we not allowed 
two tunics. I mean, I'm fine. I don't even have one tunic, so I don't, I don't have two tunics. But you might think, well, how does this all work? Well, in verses 1 through 15, primarily that's Jesus' boot camp for the first disciples, their training mission. It was their kind of camp to, camp to Koa experience. But as we go on through the rest of Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 42, Matthew has compiled the rest of Jesus' teaching on mission to prepare future disciples for more general training so that they're ready for their mission. So verses 1 through 15 are primarily towards the disciples, though there's things we can learn. And the rest of the chapter is primarily geared towards New Testament Christians. Because that's where Matthew was writing. He was writing post-Jesus' death and resurrection, post-Pentecost, post the mission going forward. And now he's writing and compiling Jesus' teachers so that future disciples like you and I would have training for the mission ahead of us. And in particular, there's one element, I think, which stands out most in these verses, 16 to 42, and it's the element of expectation. I think more than anything in these verses, Jesus is training us to have the right expectations about what mission will look like in a hostile world. We live in an age where for a long time, and most of us were brought up, where Christianity has been institutionally secure and protected. We've grown up in a time where it's been more or less okay to be Christian. Um, Gradually, over my lifetime, which has not been that long, I've seen it move sort of, not really positive, but more neutral. It's sort of like, uh, it's okay to be a Christian if you really want to, just keep it to yourself. But over suddenly, it feels like, and maybe I just don't have enough of a historical perspective, it feels like we've moved more quickly and more rapidly into hostile territory. Christianity is no longer good for the world. It's actually bad for the world. Christianity used to be, we used to kind of like, oh, you know, being Christian is not about being a good person. You are saved through what Jesus has done. But more and more now, people don't think Christians are good people. They think they're evil. They're immoral. They have restrictive views. And so we're no longer kind of in this happy, positive, or even neutral world. I think more and more, and over the, if things don't change, we're actually more and more entering into a hostile and negative and abrasive world, which makes these verses in, in uh, 16 through 42 even more relevant for us. Now, they may not be particularly relevant for us today or tomorrow, because as we see, some of them are very extreme. But I think the Lord has them here for us to prepare us for what mission looks like in a hostile world environment, in a hostile environment. And we're going to see one little core truth that I think Jesus wants to emphasize to his disciples, and it's this, about expectations. Expect Jesus to be both the solution and the problem in our missions. Expect Jesus to be both the solution and the problem in our missions. And to kind of go through that, I want to just do two simple points. Point number one, understanding their mission, looking just very briefly at the disciples' mission. And then point number two, expectations for our mission. What will our mission look like? So point number one, understanding their mission. As I said, this is a historical moment. These verses were 
said to the disciples in a particular time and place. And so their mission uh, is different to ours. Uh, You notice that in these verses it talked about only go to the lost sheep of Israel, don't go to Gentiles. That's a clue that this isn't a once-for-all principle for all Christians. Otherwise, none of us would be here today (laughs) because they hopelessly disobeyed it. You see that verse 36, before they actually go on mission, their motive was to be one of compassion. They're to share Jesus' same motive. Uh, They have this mission to go out to the lost sheep of Israel. But notice in verses 1 and kind of 7 and 8, something quite unique about the apostles. Notice their authority. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. In verses 7 and, out, he, uh, 7 and 8, he expands that more and says that these disciples can go from town to town, and they have invested, imbued authority from Jesus with a word to cast out demons, to raise the dead, to heal the sick. Now, I don't believe that this is applicable, just straight one-to-one transference for us today. Yes, we are disciples, but we are not the apostles. Notice that he gives... Who does he give the authority to? To the 12 apostles. And then what does he do? He names them one by one. So that these 12 men stand out as distinct, as unique in church history. It doesn't mean that we can't do these things. It doesn't mean that it's not possible for healings to happen, for lepers to be cleansed, for dead people to be raised. It just means that it's not normative. So we shouldn't feel guilty if we go in to a hospital room and there's a dead person that we can't call them back to life, or a sick person, and we can't command them to be healed. Because we aren't given, we aren't imbued with the exact same authority that these disciples were. We're a part of the Great Commission. So this is Matthew 10, this is the First Commission, and then we're a part of the Great Commission. And notice in the Great Commission, he, all authority has been given to me, and what are we called to do? Make disciples, baptize, and teach. He doesn't reiterate that we're to cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. So as we read this passage, we're not meant to think, crikey, I've got to go and do all of this. No, no, no. This is for them, but there's lessons that we can learn for us. Uh, Their method is quite different as well. I mean, their means and their method, they're kind of to live completely simply, to bring nothing with them, to turn up in a town, start proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, And then those who are worthy, those who are reputable, those who are respected people who trust God will welcome them into their homes and provide for them. And if they're not accepted, they're to shake the dust of their feet and go to the next town. Uh, That's not our calling. (laughs) We buy houses, we live in cities, we we stay. Uh, This is where we are. We're not called to the same means or the same method. We're allowed to take jobs. Uh, As a minister, I'm allowed to take a salary. It's a different commission and calling. So I thought it'd be helpful just to explain that so that as you read it, and maybe depending on what influence or background you've had, you've got an understanding of how do we apply this particular passage? Well, first, we have to understand it was their mission. And Jesus was training them. He was putting them through boot camp because he was about to leave them. You know, in a couple of short years, he was going to die, be resurrected, and send them into all the world to preach the gospel. And so they had the training run first. Uh, then it actually says in chapter 11, verse 1, that Jesus goes back through all their cities and teaches. So it's kind of like they go out, they have, a, they have a crack, and then Jesus comes through and mops it up at the end. Uh, he's, he's sending them out to train them. So 
we see in this um, that Jesus, uh, we're going to touch on this more, he's the solution and the problem in their mission. You see, as they go out, they have the solution. Jesus is king. The kingdom of heaven is coming. But this creates a problem. People aren't going to like it. People are going to cast them out of their cities and they're meant to move on. And this theme is going to be picked up even more in our second point where we're going to spend most of our time. So that was point one, understanding their mission. Very quickly. Point two, we're going to slow down here. Expectations for our mission. Yeah, my my mum taught me when I was a teenager and I started dating Maddie that managing expectations was one of the keys to a healthy and successful relationship. And, and, you know, Shinu and Deb, you're just newly married. I'm sure you've experienced this. Having the right expectations can really help you um, understand how to actually move about and live in this world. And it's the same with mission. We ought to expect that things will be different for us than they were for even our parents or our grandparents being Christians in this country. If we be wise and we view the times, we're not heading into more and more of a positive world for Christianity. We're heading, at least in our country, into more and more of a hostile environment. And so Jesus is preparing our expectations in four ways in in verses 16 to 42. The first way is this. Boot camp speech one, expect opposition. Expect opposition. Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Not the most encouraging kind of. <laughs> Okay, guys, I'm sending you out, and uh, just so you know, you're the sheep, they're the wolves. Uh, you have no protection, you've got nothing. You can, you can kind of bar and gnaw on things, and they can ravage you and kill you. Uh, go. Uh, but he wants them to realize that this is the reality. They're, they are weak and defenseless. They don't have all this power. They don't have all these things. And there's people out there that want to destroy them and attack them. And so the fundamental thing that overflows over this whole chapter is this one verse. Sheep and wolves be on guard. And he gives them this method. So if this is the reality, we're sheep amongst wolves, what ought we to do? Well, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's kind of a strange thing for Jesus to say. Serpents are often treated as like cunning and crafty creatures. Obviously, Satan in the garden is depicted as a serpent. But what Jesus is saying here to the disciples is to be worldly wise, to be thoughtful, to not just be idiots and and walk right into a city and and just cause an absolute um, raucous uproar, but actually to come in strategically, thoughtfully, to survey what's going on, to see how people work, to, to kind of understand how their hearts are formed, how this particular area is, to be cunning like serpents, yet to be as innocent as doves. So they're not to come in and be like, ha I know how these people tick. I'm going to manipulate them, et cetera, et cetera. No, they're to remain pure and innocent and righteous in their practice. An example of this, you may have noticed that in Victoria, they've passed this law, which will come into effect in about a year's time, the, chain, uh, the Gender Change and Suppression Bill. Uh, in this law, it's illegal for you to counsel someone to try and change, uh, to stop being homosexual or to stop being transgender. 
Um, so you can say in the law, it's sinful to be homosexual, but if someone comes to you and says, I have unwanted same-sex attraction, how do I change? If you counsel them to change or to seek to change, and they complain to the police, you can be fined and imprisoned for that action. So what do we do? Okay, opposition's coming. Well, be wise as serpents. That means probably don't launch a website called changeyoursexualorientation.com.victoria, you know, whatever, .vic.org. Like, don't start there. But be innocent as doves. If someone comes to you and is struggling with their sexuality and wants to be freed and liberated and live in the good way that God has called, be innocent and tell them the truth. Don't hide it. Don't, don't suppress it yourself, but be wise in the way that you share it. We don't have to intentionally cause problems for ourselves. So that's kind of the summary one that hangs over all of this. And then he goes on. What are the consequences of going out and being on mission and telling people the gospel? Well, he outlines a number in the rest of these 10 verses. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Another hint that we've moved on from the commands to Jesus in the disciples because they're only meant to go to the lost sheep of Israel, right? So now they're being thrown before Gentiles and the courts of man as well as the synagogues. And the consequences for going out and telling people about Jesus is we could be thrown in prison. We could be charged with illegal activity. It's possible even here in Australia. It's possible for a preacher like me to one day be facing down a courtroom where I have to give an account for what I've spoken. We see here that Jesus is warning them that both the Gentiles and the Jewish people will fight against them. In our context, the left wing and the right wing won't be on our side because Jesus is the solution and the problem. When you preach Jesus, eventually, if people don't submit to him, they will end up hating you. They will end up opposing you because they oppose Jesus. There's no safety in any political party, only safety in those people who align themselves with Jesus. So how should we react? Well, look again at verse, uh, look down at verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. I love this. It's such a beautiful promise from the Lord. He's like, sheep and wolves, you're going to be thrown into prison. I know you're going to be anxious, but you don't have to figure out all the arguments now. I will tell you what to say. I will give you wisdom and lead you in what to say. If you read through the book of Acts, you see this happen. Stephen, before the Sanhedrin, he preaches a sermon, gets him killed, but it was the Spirit-inspired thing he was meant to say at the time. I was reading in Acts 21 and 22 this morning, the Apostle Paul before the Jewish council and the Gentile council, an exact you know, uh, fulfillment of this verse. And his, his words are so wise and so amazing. I encourage you to read through the book of Acts and see how God answers this prayer. 
So when we're put in these situations, when we're put on the spot, when we're thrown before human resources at work for your perspective on particular issues or something that you say or you're not willing to call a man a woman or a woman a man, don't be anxious. For the Spirit of God will give you words to say in that very hour. It doesn't mean we can't study, but it means we ought not to be full of fear about, oh, what's going to happen? God is with us. But just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, look at verse 21. Jesus really is trying to set the disciples up with their expectations. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not very encouraging. Um, uh, any horrible thought. And this happens all over the world. Uh, that family members, when you repent, say, from Islam and, and turn to Christ, the family tie is gone. Uh, the, their adherence to their religion goes against family and th- they will seek to put you to death um, if they're strictly following because that's what the Quran says to do. Uh, this will happen. This does happen all over the world. We just don't hear about it all that often. And so Jesus is saying, don't just expect to go before courts. Don't just expect imprisonment. Death may come. May not happen to us, and God willing, it never happens in our nation, but it's possible. And He's giving us these expectations to prepare us, to prepare our hearts. And even if death doesn't come, verse 22, you will be hated. You will be hated. A year ago, I was, um, I got caught in a bit of a Facebook accidental offense. I, I, accident, I just put out a post, and it really offended. Um, an old school friend of mine, and he turned it and, and kind of reposted my post, deleting my name, but reposting the post on his page and saying how terrible I was for believing this and how, you know, horrible, et cetera, et cetera. And then all these people, all my old school friends commenting, yeah, we hate this guy, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, oh, gosh, my goodness. I couldn't handle it. I was, for days, I was so anxious about I can't believe all these people like just think this about me and I can't believe what I'm experiencing for this. And my wife Maddie was very helpful. She was like, yeah, they're going to hate what you believe in. They hate Jesus. They don't, why do you expect everyone to like you? (laughs) But I go around with this general assumption, everyone's going to like me. I'm a likable guy. Uh, But the word is here is actually to help us and for all of us. Friends, if you stay with Jesus and you really believe what he says and you press people on the gospel and call them to repent and believe and say Jesus is king you must believe eventually you will be hated people will hate you not because you're annoying or frustrating but they will hate you for my namesake for Jesus's name because they hate Jesus that's the reality so he's, he's building our expectations So what do you do? Well, for the disciples, and potentially this might apply to us at some point, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, this is verse 23, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There may come a time when we may need to move states or local council areas. This is happening a lot in the U.S. at the moment. 
as the divide between the blue and the red, the Republican and Democrat gets bigger, there's a whole uh, red flight where a huge amount of Republicans are leaving Democratic-based states and flooding to strongly conservative areas. Cities and towns that allow freedom of religion, all these Republicans and conservatives are moving in. They're fleeing from persecution and seeking refuge. And it's not wrong to do that. Um, if you've got a family and, and you need protection, you want certain things, Jesus is not saying you have to stay and just be killed. He's saying you can flee, it's fine. And there may come a time for us to do that. The last little line in that, that you have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes, is one of the most hotly debated verses in all of the New Testament. It's up there in the top three. Um, and so, uh, to be honest, I don't have a strong view on that. Um, and it, it could mean that Jesus got it wrong, that he thought that he thought the Son of God, that he was going to come, that his kingdom was going to be finished before the disciples, uh, and he got it wrong. Um, that's what some people believe. Other people believe it refers actually to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. When the Son of Man comes, you will not have got through all the towns in Jerusalem, and then AD 70, the temple's destroyed. The Son of Man comes and brings judgment on Israel. Some people believe it. Um, it actually refers to Daniel chapter 7, and when it says, and I saw a Son of Man come, um, into heaven, into the throne room of God, and they believe it refers to the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. I don't have a strong view, and so I'm not going to promote a view right now. But nonetheless, um, it, it does mean something, and it is worth studying, and I would be interested to study it at another time, but I just didn't have time to <laughs> do it all this week, so I'm going to leave that there. But why is all this happening? Well, verse 24 and 25 a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? If you remember in chapter 9, when Jesus cast out the demon, they said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. That's what the Pharisees said. He cast out Satan by the power of Satan. They're saying Jesus is empowered by Satan. And Jesus says to his disciples, if, you, if they said that about me and you're one of my disciples, then they're going to say the same thing, if not worse, about you. And we should expect the same. So Jesus is giving us our boot camp speech and he's telling us the first lesson is to expect opposition. Why? Because Jesus is the solution and the problem in our mission. If we went out just giving out aid, we'd get in no trouble. If we went out just loving people and giving them cuddles and jackets, no one would get thrown in prison. No one would be killed. No one would be hated. But when we go out and do those things and tell people that they must repent of their sins and be followers of Jesus Christ, then the problems begin. So Jesus is both the solution and the problem in our mission. And therefore, we ought to, number one, expect opposition. The second thing we ought to expect in verses 26 to 33 is we ought to expect grace. We ought to expect grace. Jesus knows you and I. Um, as I studied this this week, I was like, I don't really want, <laughs> I don't want any of this to be true. I don't want opposition. I don't want prison. I don't want death. I don't want to be hated. I want to be liked. I want to have a comfortable life. 
And Jesus knows our hearts and he knows your hearts. And so read with me verse 26 and see how he addresses them. So, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul, both soul and body in hell. He says to not fear for two reasons in this first section here. Number one, you're on the right side of history. You're on the right side of history. What you proclaim when we tell people the gospel, though it looks hidden, though it looks ununderstood, no one, uh, people think, ah, oh, it's so silly, it's so archaic. One day it will be revealed. One day the king will come back and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord. But for now, it looks hidden. For now, it looks like we're on the wrong side. But he's saying to his disciples, you're on the right side of history. Don't worry. Have no fear. And secondly, have no fear because although they can kill you, they can torture you, they can maim you, they cannot steal your soul from your heavenly father. It's such a beautiful reality that the worst anyone could ever do to you from a fleshly perspective is kill you. Yet Jesus is saying that they have no power over your soul. And so if you trust in Jesus, the worst that can happen is you die and you get to be with Jesus. Uh, and that's the worst that can happen. Now, we say that with a smile. I'm sure when that day comes, I won't be smiling. However, it is one of the ways in which we have grace from Christ. He continues, verse 29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. He's saying, do not fear because God is in control. And even more, do not fear because he cares for you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. We all know how many hairs Murray has, but for the rest of us, it's hard to know. <laughs> Sorry, Murray. It's a low blur. No. <laughs> he knows and he cares. And if we experience the harshest of punishments, the harshest of torment and persecution, never for a second think it's because God does not care for you. Never for a second think it's not because God is out of control. If he was in control, he wouldn't have put you here. No, he knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows how many sparrows there are in the world. And you are of more value than all of them. He's ordaining it. He's putting that in your path. And so he will give you the grace to get through it. So what should we do? The last thing in this little section, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. The last way he gives us grace is if we hold fast to him until the end, he will not deny us. Though we are sinful, though we were once rebels, though we deserve to be denied before the Father, if we hold fast to him to the end, he will not deny you. He will welcome you into his eternal kingdom. You will sit at the king's table. 
So never deny him, friends. Never turn your back on him. Never give up on the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter the opposition, no matter the laws, no matter the consequences. Never deny him, for he will never deny you. So we're to expect opposition. We're to expect grace, that he controls all things, that he cares for us, and that he will welcome us into his kingdom. Thirdly, we are to expect division. We've already seen opposition, but he goes even deeper in verses 34 to 39. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Striking words, aren't they? You know, we kind of think of Jesus like he's a good guy, brings love and peace. But we ought not to edit Jesus' words. He comes with an announcement. Jesus Christ is God. He comes. The King is here. Repent and believe. Ultimately, the message of Christ, though it brings peace between us and God, will bring division between peoples here on earth. Because as we've said, people love their sin and they hate the Savior. And so Jesus came to bring this message of salvation and because of our sins, many people will reject it and it will cause division. We shouldn't expect the world to become more and more harmonious. We actually should expect to see it more bifurcated because it, as the cross comes in, it divides people. It divides people because you either reject it or you accept it. And it looks, and it goes even deeper um, to the family, the most core society Verses 35, For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Perhaps some of you already know this. Perhaps you've experienced this in your family as you turn to Christ and your family turned away from you. People are written out of wills. People are stopped from being able to come to family functions. And in many parts of the world, people are beaten and put to death. Families turn on each other, as we've already noted. Verse 37, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. These are some of the heaviest words in all of Jesus' teaching. But he's preparing us to expect division. The cross divides. It heals, but it also divides. And he's saying to his disciples that you must be willing to take up this level of suffering and persecution. And if you're not willing... You're not worthy. If you try and save your life, protect your reputation, if you're willing to sacrifice your salvation in Christ for the harmony of your family, you will lose your eternal life. That's what he's saying. There, there can only be one Lord. There can only be one King. And you have to choose between your eternal and heavenly family and your earthly one. Now, some of us have the privilege of being in families that love Jesus. But if you had to choose, 
Which one would you choose? That's what Jesus is getting at here. There's going to come times, my friends, where we're going to have to do and say things in our families which will cause division, even amongst Christian members. But our allegiance is first and foremost to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who saved our souls. And so we have to take up our cross and bear the consequences. And finally, expect opposition, expect grace in the midst of it, expect division, expect reward. Verse 40 to 42. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he's a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The joy of this is, is that we're all involved in the mission. We all play various parts. We all, some of us go more than others. Some of us stay more than others. Some of us support financially and some of us go out and actually make it happen. And what Jesus is saying here is that everyone involved in the mission will be rewarded. Everyone will be rewarded for the part that they play. And when we go out and we tell people the gospel, we don't go out in our own authority and we don't go out representing ourselves or Christianity or even this church. We go out representing Jesus Christ himself. And if people receive you, they don't receive you, they receive Christ behind you. And that's the, the glory and the reward of the mission is that we get to be ambassadors. We get to go out and be a part of telling everyone this wonderful, good news. So, we've understood their mission. That was for them. But now we have expectations for our mission. Exciting message. <laughs> expect opposition, but expect grace. Expect division, and one day, friends, expect reward. We are to expect Jesus to be both the solution and the problem in our mission. Almost two centuries ago, Adoniram and Ann Judson set up sail to India and eventually to Burma on a mission that looked anything but exciting and easy. Adoniram, which you must be a missionary if your name's Adoniram. That's just, that's just your destiny. If you're born Adoniram, you're going to be a missionary. Um, but before they left, a year before they left, Adoniram asked for Anne's hand in marriage to her father. And this is what he said to him. He wrote him a letter and said this, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her 
and for you. For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? With a crown of righteousness, brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Saviour from heathens saved. Through her means, from eternal woe and despair. Adoniram understood the mission of a disciple in a hostile world. He knew that to take his wife and eventually to have kids would likely result in sickness, pain and death for the sake of the gospel. And so he prepared her father for that same reality. Thankfully, her father said yes. They were married and eventually set sail. And her father would never see his daughter again. And Judson died in Burma, sharing the gospel. And so did Adoniram. They experienced suffering, loss of children, persecution, imprisonment. And they were in a land where there were zero Christians before they got there. Now, 200 years later, in Burma, where it's illegal to be Christian, there are 4,000 Baptist churches and half a million Christians in a land where there were previously zero. This is the opportunities we have as missionary disciples. It may not look like Adoniram and Anne, but Jesus is preparing us that if we want to go into a hostile world and share the gospel, we ought to expect opposition. We ought to expect his grace for the process, to expect division, and ultimately to one day expect reward. Adoniram and Anne, I believe, are in heaven with those lost heathen rejoicing around the throne of the Savior. And so may I encourage us, Let's take the gospel, let's take the message of Jesus Christ, and let's go. Let's spur one another on. I'm frightened by this passage. I don't want it to happen. We need each other to spur each other on, to run Mount Kurehi together and be ready for the battles uh, that the Lord has before us. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, I ask that you would prepare us to fight Prepare us to go in love with the message of the gospel. God, it's terrifying to think of these realities being true. But we thank you that you've prepared us in advance for them. God, as our world seemingly becomes more hostile in the West to your son and to the gospel, help us to be prepared. Help us to be prepared to stand for you no matter what to be prepared for our sons and daughters and our friends to potentially fall into harm, loss of job, loss of career, loss of promotion, potentially imprisonment, jail, and even death. We don't know what lies before us, Lord, and so we ask for your grace to help us as we go out. May we take up our cross, O Lord, and proclaim your name no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.